This is Chris Flasto, host of The Investigation. Thank you for listening. We're going on hiatus, but be sure to stay subscribed for updates and new investigations from the team. If you're looking for more investigations, though, I have a recommendation. It's our daily podcast, Start Here. Each morning, in just 20 minutes, we'll take you to the biggest stories with insightful, straightforward reporting. All week, we'll be giving you a taste of Start Here, right here in the feed. But if you like what you hear, be sure to search for Start Here and hit subscribe so it can be right there waiting for you each morning. Without further ado, here's Start Here. It's Wednesday, July 31st. Ten people chose a side. Where will the rest of America land? We start here. This debate was summed up by two words. You're wrong. As Democrats rip into each other, are they doing Republicans work for them? We'll take you to Detroit. The president tapped him to lead our spy agencies, but his resume was a mystery even to Washington. We're just not getting any answers that connected him directly to that case. Now ABC News has found discrepancies on that resume. And it was criminal when wealthy parents scammed college admission tests, but this is legal. Parents are living in, you know, $500,000, million-dollar homes, and they're saying, up. Oh, There's this way that we can save and not have to pay. The loophole that could lead to big changes in financial aid. From ABC News, this is Start Here. I'm Brad Milkey. There's this thing that Bernie Sanders does when he talks. He doesn't say things like, I'm going to win the White House. He likes to say, we. So what we will do the first week we are in the White House is bring the entire hemisphere together. His revolution, like we're all going to be there with him. And this is something he did in his first election, too. He's just a member of this sweeping revolution. We're all on the same team. But last night, most of these candidates were on the same team. That just didn't include Bernie Sanders. So I think Democrats win when we run on real solutions, not impossible promises. This is an example of wish list economics. Yes, I have bold ideas, but they are grounded in reality. From the opening bell, there was this chasm among the Democrats on stage in Detroit. On one side were the moderates, Pete Buttigieg, Amy Klobuchar, Beto O'Rourke, John Hickenlooper, John Delaney, Tim Ryan, Montana Governor Steve Bullock, all of them saying Bernie Sanders' plans are out of control. They're from fantasy land. But it would be an evolution, not a revolution. The question was, would anyone come to Sanders' rescue? And in the meantime, would Democrats write President Trump's campaign ads for him? Let's break this down with ABC's political director, Rick Klein, who's in Detroit right now. Rick, was there a moment that made you go, oh, oh, this is what the debate's about? It started right away, Brad, when the the focus of the first maybe quarter of debate was about Medicare for all, Bernie Sanders' signature health care plan. We don't have to go around and be the party of subtraction and telling half the country who has private health insurance that their health insurance is illegal. And when he tangled with John Delaney about whether this was a realistic plan. What do you say to Congressman Delaney? You're wrong. That, to me, spoke volumes about where the party is right now, because suddenly Bernie Sanders' position was the mainstream. It's almost the exact opposite of four years ago, where he was the outlier. He was representing the liberal left. He has moved literally to the center of the stage, and he, Elizabeth Warren, stood there against the rest of the Democratic crowd. Yeah, I was going to say, Warren came to Sanders' defense early on, and then Sanders defended her. Like, this happened again and again. Why, Rick? Aren't they each other's biggest rivals for this really big slice of the vote? There is a recognition in both camps that there will be a fight between Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, but that that fight should not be waged right now. Let's be clear about this. We are the Democrats. We are not about trying to take away health care from anyone. That's what the Republicans are trying to do. And we should stop 
using Republican talking points in order to talk with each other about how to best provide that health care. They are happy to joust against centrists in the party, a moderates, or red state governors and senators, folks that they feel like represent a dated and different vision of the party. And you heard both Sanders and Warren make almost identical arguments about why their policies are the ones that can ignite the youth in the country. Well, the truth is that every credible poll that I have seen has me beating Donald Trump. Included. And Elizabeth Warren calling out uh, her rivals for being too cautious. You know, I don't understand why anybody goes to all the trouble of running for president of the United States just to talk about what we really can't do and shouldn't fight for. For worrying too much about what Republicans might think rather than pursuing just the best policies. Hey, this was the last chance for a lot of campaigns besides these two, right? That The next debate's going to be hosted by ABC News. The thresholds to get into that debate are rising. Did anyone just jump onto the September stage who wasn't on it before? You know, fully half of the stage does not have a guaranteed ticket for the next debate, and that means you're effectively shut out of the conversation. I thought it was a strong night for Marianne Williamson. And I've heard some people here tonight, I almost wonder why you're Democrats. You seem to think there's something wrong about using, about using the instruments of government to help people. What is her deal, Rick? Because she's not one of the moderates I'm talking about, and she's certainly not Warren and Sanders. What, what is she? No, she's she's different. Uh, she comes from a different background. She's trying to just basically call them all out and say, look, I have a different vision entirely. If you think any of this wonkiness is going to deal with this dark psychic force of the collectivized hatred that this president is bringing up in this country, then I'm afraid that the Democrats are going to see some very dark days. We need to, we need to win with love. We need to call out the politics of division. I could see that resonating with maybe enough people to get you that 2% of the polls. And look, if you're John Delaney... We should deal with the tragedy be uninsured and give everyone health care as a right. But why do we got to be the party of taking something away no, from people. No one is he's got to be happy with the fact that he was able to litigate his case against Bernie Sanders. If he's ever going to get a look, it's going to be now. And I think you could say the same about a couple of the moderates, that they got the argument they wanted. So, by the way, did Bernie Sanders, because he was the center of the discussion, even if he was playing defense. But, but here's the thing, then, because I'm thinking back to 2016, right? And this was a tale of a bunch of fired-up progressives Middle-of-the-road swing voters seem to say, hey, I don't like these guys. They're crazy. I'm voting for Trump. Hillary Clinton wins the nomination, though, and then all the fired-up progressives say, well, I don't like this lady. I'm sitting out. So after a night like last night, when moderates are ripping into Medicare for all, ripping into uh, these bold immigration plans, are, are Democrats just heading for the exact same thing? Well, that's one theory of the case, yes, that Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren will say, look, if you decry these plans, you're taking, you're, you're turning your back on the energy of the party and the youthful enthusiasm, the resurgent left. We're going to solve them by being the Democratic Party of big structural change. The flip side of it is, how do you win in places like Michigan? Well, if you're Congressman Tim Ryan from Ohio or uh, G Governor John Hickenlooper or Governor Steve Bullock, you have a different vision of how to win. And we've talked about giving free health care to undocumented workers when so many Americans are struggling to pay for their health care. I, quite frankly, don't think that that is a, an agenda that we can move forward on and win. We've got but you know, Brad, it was just striking to me how absent Joe Biden was. I, I did a search on the transcript at the end of the night to check myself. The word Biden was not spoken one wow. time in the more than two hours of debating. And that, to me, is... Uh, it's not a realistic portrait of where the race is, but it just cries out for what would Joe do? What would Joe be doing when and if, and, and, it, and it's more of a when than an if, this policy debate hits him squarely. And he is stuck there uh, fighting against the Elizabeth Warren and the Bernie Sanders wings of the party.
and we will see how Biden fares tonight when he squares off against Kamala Harris, his nemesis from the last debate, along with Cory Booker and a host of other candidates. Again, all looking to get on that September debate stage. Rick Klein in Detroit. We can hear the chatter behind you. Thanks so much. Thank you, Brad. And one issue you always knew would be an issue at this debate was President Trump and race. Little kids literally woke up this weekend, turned on the TV and saw their president calling their city, the town of Baltimore, nothing more than a home for rats. This was no accident, not from the moderators asking the questions, not from the candidates bashing the White House. It's this hot button issue because, of course, of what President Trump has said recently about Baltimore, about people of color. And a lot of people will tell you that is no accident either. Told him the things that he could do. We need this country needs healing. There's so much division in America along racial lines. It's worse than it was years ago. Well, this week, President Trump has been on a mission to say these comments are not racist, he's not racist, and yesterday, he visited Jamestown, Virginia on the 400th anniversary of America's first meeting of representatives, the birthplace of democracy in the Western Hemisphere, also the place where enslaved Africans first arrived on these shores. But some observers say this event kind of shook up the president and might have caused him to reignite some of the flames that his congressional allies have been scurrying to put out. ABC's Karen Travers is at the White House. And Karen, this was supposed to be a tour and a speech. What happened? You know, the president was down there to mark the 400th anniversary of legislative democracy. We remember every sacred soul who suffered the horrors of slavery and the anguish of bondage. He noted the nation's early history of slavery, but not in the audience for that event yesterday were two dozen African-American state representatives who skipped the event in protest because they are upset about the president's attacks recently on the so-called squad on Elijah Cummings. Right here in Virginia, your predecessors. There was also a moment where a state legislator interrupted the president's remarks, had a sign, and he shouted, you can't send us back. This would have gone, I think, relatively unnoticed, maybe picked up by some cable networks, but not a big headline until the president talked about it after he got back to the White House and slammed the media for making a big deal about it. You gave the protester 100 percent of the time. So kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy then, the the president turns it into a bigger controversy. You look at poverty levels, they're doing better than they've ever done before. So many things, opportunity zones, criminal justice reform. He said yesterday at the White House, I am the least racist person there is anywhere in the world. But they're so happy that I pointed out the corrupt politics of Baltimore. It's filthy dirty, it's so horrible, and they are happy as hell. So He's not just banking down from these attacks on the Congressman Elijah Cummings. Representative Cummings should take his oversight committee and start doing oversight on Baltimore. He'd find out some real things. I think there's a, a tendency to frame these fights that the president has as a war of words or a fight between the president and his subject of his tweets or statements. But it was the president who started this, Brad. Oh, this isn't people like going back and forth. No, I mean, it's hard to see how this is a back and forth when it was the president who started this seemingly out of the blue. A new poll, Quinnipiac poll, came out today saying that 80 percent of blacks think you're racist. How you know do you why? Respond because to that? the fake news doesn't report it properly. People like you. Well, and here's the fake thing, right? It's possible to enact policies properly. that you might think benefit a minority and still be racist 
towards that minority. Like we've seen that from past presidents, right? So at the White House, ABC's Kira Phillips actually asked the president about a new Quinnipiac poll in which more than half of Americans say he is racist. 80% of black Americans say this, and he kind of brushed it off. He did. And, and, you know, that number, I think, in itself is not surprising. But why it's notable is because the president has said that his attacks on Elijah Cummings are helping him politically. And at the same time, though, when the president was asked, essentially, why are you doing this? He said, there's, there's no, no strategy. strategy. I have no strategy. There's zero strategy. All it is is I'm pointing out facts. The reality is there is a strategy and it's a strategy that he thinks is working. No, I think I'm helping myself because I'm uh, pointing out the tremendous corruption. Despite poll numbers showing that this is turning off women voters, that this is uh, turning off independent voters. And those are the voters the president's going to need to win re-election. He is banking on locking down his base and getting them fired up. This is not a strategy that expands upon his numbers from 2016. And kind of ironic that this happened in Virginia, where the governor is Democrat Ralph Northam, the guy who apologized for being in a racist yearbook photo and then saying he wasn't in it. So lots of different ways to push back against accusations of racism. Lots of voters making up their minds right now. Karen Travers at the White House. Thank you. Thanks, Brad. Next up on Start Here, it's the job where you just give bad news to the president every morning. Now Congress is worried a rookie will just tell him what he wants to hear. When Dan Coats stepped down as director of national intelligence, lots of people in Washington applauded him and said, hey, man, tough job. You did well. You stood up tall to Russia despite mixed signals from the White House. Big shoes to fill. Well, then President Trump announced his pick to take Coates' place. And everyone in Washington said, who? I don't know him at all. I I haven't met him yet. Congressman John Uh, Ratcliffe is seen as a loyal soldier for the president in the House Intelligence Committee, but he does not have a long track record there. Our team has been digging into his previous track records. On Capitol Hill now, there are real concerns that President Trump's choice might not get confirmed. ABC's Alex Mallon and our investigative team was doing the digging here. Alex, what did you guys find? So we were looking into Ratcliffe's background because, you know, he's a three-term congressman and he previously served as the U.S. attorney for about a year in the Eastern District of Texas. Uh, Prior to that, he was a chief of counterterrorism in that same U.S. attorney's office. But his resume pointed to uh, his role in this case that involved the government prosecuting this charity group that was accused of funneling uh, charity funds to Hamas. Now, he said that he was responsible specifically in a press release uh, for sending that group of terrorists to jail. Uh, So we looked into it and we could not find any connection in public court documents that actually connected him to that case. So we took those questions to some of the defense attorneys on the case, a couple of the prosecuting attorneys, and we're just not getting any answers that connected him directly to that case. Uh, It ended up that his office responded to our inquiries on this subject, and they essentially said that he was a special prosecutor but was looking into separate matters on the case related to a first trial that ended in a mistrial. Uh, So so he he wasn't like the lead guy on this thing that you're talking about then? In other words, his statement or his office's statement that said that he was responsible for convicting these terrorists was just simply inaccurate. Okay, so this is an important job he's applying for, essentially now, to be confirmed on. What does this mean for his confirmation chances? It's really unclear. Right now, Republicans on the Hill and the Senate Intelligence Committee, where he's going to face those confirmation hearings, have been pretty muted about his chances. He is a good man. He is very diligent. 
They say that they're happy to consider his credentials. They want to take a second look at him. And I'd rather not address that until I've actually had a chance to meet him and discuss his background and, and qualifications. But really, the, the gist that we're getting from most members is that they don't know who he is. This is a big job. I mean, you're overseeing 11 different intelligence agencies in this job. And your job, as one Democrat on the committee, Senator Richard Blumenthal pointed out, is delivering bad news completely without political caste or corruption. Blumenthal's concern echoes what we're hearing from a lot of Democrats. This nomination kind of follows in the mold of a Bill Barr, where it appears, the Attorney General, where it appears the president is more interested in getting a loyalist than someone who will speak truth to power. They're concerned that he's going to be a foot soldier for this president, that he's been one of the most chief critics of the Mueller investigation, and he's said uh, that they want to look into the origins of the Russia probe. You wrote 180 pages, 180 pages about decisions that weren't reached, about potential crimes that weren't charged or decided. Really, what the job of the DNI is, is giving the president recommendations on how he should act on national security matters that should not be influenced in any way by politics. Yeah, Alex Mallon and the team there pushing the conversation forward on this position you're going to hear a lot more about in the weeks ahead. Thanks, bud. Thanks, Brad. One of the things that was so infuriating about the so-called varsity blues scandal was families across America would tell you, this is not a surprise to us. We all knew the college admission system was flawed. SAT tests, college essays, sports scholarships, it all feels arbitrary. But what really made them mad was this idea of a flawed system routinely being gamed by people who already have a leg up in life. Some people are, maybe some people don't have money and that's why they're not here and they're better than, you know, all of us. And it's, to be honest, it's totally unfair to them as well. Well, yesterday, the Wall Street Journal revealed a new loophole that, again, you might have always wondered about, and you guessed it, it is fully being used. ABC's Lindsay Davis has been tracking this. Lindsay, what are we talking about here? Yeah, so we're talking specifically now about a financial loophole that allows wealthy parents to get money for their children that they wouldn't otherwise qualify for. And they do this by transferring legal guardianship of their teens. So the maneuver means essentially that the children's earnings are the only earnings that are associated to that child. The family's income and savings, those are both excluded, which means that in some cases, scholarships and financial aid that are designed for middle and low income students, those were then awarded to families without a financial hardship. Oh, so mom and dad make 100K a year or something, but all of a sudden... You're not under mom and dad's roof legally. You're just a kid with some summer savings. Exactly. And that's also, let's say you made $3,000 during the summer. That's your income for the year. And so now you qualify for all of this scholarship, all of this federal financial aid that otherwise you wouldn't have afforded. And so then the big college admission scandal a while back, that was illegal activity. But you spoke to an expert, Megan Koval from the National Association of Student Financial Aid Administrators. There's no laws against this? This is totally legal. And the question here is just how ethical is it? Especially in the state of Illinois, for example, their state-based grant is limited. So it's first come, first serve. So if there are students who are taking these monies who really don't need it, they are really taking it away from families who are in great need. And parents are living in, you know, $500,000, million-dollar homes, and they're saying, oh, there's this way that we can save and not have to pay so much money for our child how to go to college. How much can I save? You can save about $40,000 a year or more. You know, what's interesting is you had uh, an example of one parent who said, 
We yes, we do have a one point two million dollar house, but we don't have any equity in it because we used all that equity for our other children that we spent six hundred thousand dollars already for them to go to school. And so this was just a way that we could afford to send our children to school and not seeing anything wrong with it. That's the thing. I remember I got into college. Tuition is so outrageous. The financial aid parameters are so you know, complicated and restrictive. At one point, Lindsay, I remember my family joking about this idea, like, you know, we could cut you loose and then you could get financial aid. But we didn't do that because, A, there's always somebody needier than you out there. And B, like, who would have the time or the money to pull that off? Apparently, it's not that difficult. Um, sometimes it's just as basic as the um, the parent and the student and the guardian proving that, that it is in the, quote, best interest of the student, which, of course, can mean a whole bunch of different things. It really could be done in a day of court. You show up. Um, the new person who's going to be taking. So let's say you have a cousin who's not so well off as you. You have your cousin show up. You have uh, your teenagers show up in court. It's a little bit of paperwork. People sign. And then you say, hey, uh, this person's now going to be the legal guardian of Mm. this child. And it's done. So this is now under investigation by uh, the education department and several universities The question is, maybe they're going to change some language here, which would say, if you are going to transfer your guardianship, you can no longer receive any kind of financial support from your parents. There are a lot of students who truly legitimately need these guardianships. And so we don't want to make the process more difficult for the students who do need them. So, when again, I remember the frustration with the crooked SAT proctors, right, was that people that really need extra time on the test now might not get it. And now you think of a 17-year-old who really needs to be emancipated from their parents. Like, that's a rough situation. Like, that's the situation where financial aid could change your life. And now you wonder if that kid won't be trusted. Lindsay Davis, thanks so much. Thanks, Brad. And one last thing. You know those tiny bottles of shampoo in your hotel bathroom? How often do you actually go through that whole bottle? Well, whether you use all the shampoo or just a few drops, you're always going through the same amount of plastic. That stuff gets tossed out. Well, yesterday, a major hotel chain announced those bottles are going to become a thing of the past. Holiday Inn smiles ahead. Holiday Inn and Intercontinental Hotels say within the next couple years, they are getting rid of tiny shampoos. In their place, you'll start seeing big shampoo dispensers in your shower that employees can just refill as needed. They say this is all about reducing their environmental footprint. This one hotel chain burns through more than 200 million mini bathroom supplies every year. And so watch for this in other hotel chains. These bottles could become the next plastic straws, although one study says there are about 8 billion of those to clean up. So wait, I'm already packing the hotel towels in my luggage. Now i got to add this big soap dispenser? This is, this is getting tough. If you're looking for more info on tonight's debate or more hot takes on last night's, we will have more on that throughout the day at abcnews.com or the ABC News app. I'm Brad Milkey. See you tomorrow.